0: This week, we'll talk about the heart. Like with the lungs, the heart is incredibly important, and kind of hard to operate upon without killing the patient. As such, like with the lungs, early surgery of the heart was also on the surrounding structures. For example, the pericardium, which is a membrane that covers the heart and the chest wall. Sometimes when diseased, the pericardium can become filled with excess fluid, which adds additional pressure onto the heart. As you can imagine, extra pressure against your heart's natural ability to pump blood is not good. The first attempt to deal with such an issue was all the way back in 1649, when a John Riolan proposed making a hole through the sternum, or breastbone, and then tapping the pericardium to remove excess fluid. It was rarely done, but the procedure did persist, and there were at least a few records of it being successful in treatment, although that must have been a nerve-wracking surgery to perform. Cut just a tiny bit too far into the heart instead of just the pericardium, and your patient will probably bleed out. In 1875, two whole centuries later, not many advances had been made, and one doctor remarked that any operation on the heart was, quote, nothing short of madness. However, madness or not, if the patient is going to die anyway, those riskier procedures seem much more reasonable, which is exactly the situation when the heart is wounded directly. In 1895, Axel Kaplan received a patient who had a stab wound to the chest. He was unconscious, with no pulse, but the heart could still faintly be heard trying to cling to life. Kaplan opened the chest up and found about a liter and a half of blood. Think three-fourths of a two-liter bottle of soda. He cleared the blood out and then sutured the heart on the wound. Unfortunately, the patient died of sepsis 16 hours later, because it's still too early for good antiseptic or septic practices. Just a year later, an Italian surgeon, Guido Farina, attempted something similar, again on a young man who had been stabbed in the heart. Same deal, though. He sutured the heart, which went fine, but the patient died of related complications a few days later. Finally, Ludwig Wren, six months later, finally had a long-term successful heart repair operation. His patient, a 22-year-old gardener, also had a stab wound in the chest from a drunken brawl. What is it with men of this era getting stabbed in the chest? Regardless, Wren opened up the chest, sutured up the wound on the heart, and the patient survived just fine this time. Over the next few decades, many tried their hands at similar repairs. In 1909, there were about 150 known attempts, of which 60% died, mostly from infections. Unsurprisingly, those numbers of attempts shot up during the World Wars, But regardless, these early repair surgeries demonstrated that the heart could be operated on. The first planned operation of the heart was to be a fix for mitral stenosis. Mitral stenosis is when the mitral valve narrows, which prevents blood from flowing around the heart correctly. Various surgeons were experimenting on animals to see if a procedure could be done. But in 1923, E.C. Cutler and S.A. Levine performed the first surgical treatment. A girl of just 12 had severe mitral stenosis and was dying, with recurring heart failure and lung congestion. As with earlier operations, the fact that she would die anyway without intervention made the surgeons more bold than usual. They cut through the heart and used a small knife to slice the valve that was causing problems, opening it up. This first operation went surprisingly smoothly. The whole thing only took an hour and fifteen minutes, and the girl lived for another four and a half years with much improved health. Cutler was frankly lucky though. His operation was a blind one. There was no way that he could make a large incision in the heart without causing them to bleed out, and so he used a very small incision and could only guess that the knife had made contact with the valve by sense of touch through the knife, not even directly. Any mistakes, and he would have killed his patient. Unsurprisingly, later attempts at the same procedure had a lot more mortality. Meanwhile, Henry Sudar had a similar situation, this time an 11-year-old girl that had mitral stenosis, who was also surely going to die. Sudar, though, was a little different. Cutler had gone into the heart from the ventricle, which is a chamber that has high pressure inside, while Sudar went from the atrium, which has much less blood pressure in it. Going through the atrium and that lower blood pressure means that Souter could stop the bleeding just with his finger. Being able to use his finger meant that he could actually feel the valve directly, which is a little better than what Cutler could feel just through a knife. His patient made a full recovery, a great success for Souter. However, he never performed another operation on the heart, later in life remarking that he must be the only cardiac surgeon in the world who never experienced a patient death. As with our other specialties, World War II came along and showed that the body was capable of handling surgery much better than expected. Heart surgery was no exception, and immediately following the terrible war, cardiac surgery saw a bit of a renaissance. Dwight Harkin was a surgeon who performed a large number of heart operations during World War II, using a similar procedure to the surgeries we just discussed, but instead of fixing mitral stenosis, he was removing shrapnel. He would make a small incision in the heart, and then insert a finger to locate and remove shrapnel. New procedures for treating stenosis of other valves in the heart quickly evolved. Lord Brock and T. Holmes Sellors almost simultaneously performed surgeries on the stiffened valves throughout the heart. Even these, though, were still blind surgeries, in which surgeons had to perform their work without direct sight of what they were cutting. It still boggles my mind that they could successfully perform such surgeries at all. In 1952, we finally start to fix the blind part, but it takes quite a leap in technology. The first necessary piece was induced hypothermia, or purposefully lowering the body temperature. Now, normally, hypothermia is not good. It requires you to be very, very cold and can absolutely kill you. But early on, doctors noticed that frostbitten soldiers did not seem to react much to amputation. Now, normally when you cut someone's limb off, they react at least a little bit, and so it seemed that maybe cold had some medicinal use. In 1940, Temple Fay and Lorreen Smith noted that if you cooled the entire body to 27 degrees Celsius, or 80.6 degrees Fahrenheit, then it reduced the need for pain-killing drugs. Although they were trying to cure cancer, which does not work. W.G. Bigelow did similar animal testing and found that cooling in animals slowed the metabolic rate, which allowed animal tissues to survive unharmed without food and little oxygen. This meant that you might be able to deprive the body of blood temporarily without terrible detriment to the patient. Usually, you kinda need blood, but it turns out if you're cold enough, you need it just a little bit less. In these early times, cooling was done by just immersing the patient in ice water, which must have been very inconvenient. Other options included pumping the blood out, putting it through essentially a refrigerator, and then pumping it back in. Even for all that work, induced hypothermia only brought the surgeon about six minutes, in which the heart didn't need to be pumping properly. Past that, and serious damage could still occur to the patient. And so we still need better technology. As we've discussed, Surgeons are good, but six minutes is still not a lot of time. Optimally, you would just temporarily completely replace the heart, which is what we eventually do. Known as a heart-lung machine, the device takes blood out of the patient, adds oxygen in, and then pumps it back into the patient, completely bypassing the heart and taking over its function while the surgeon operates. If you can believe it, someone actually proposed the idea of a heart-lung machine all the way back in 1812 despite having no means to make such a machine whatsoever. It took until 1937 when John Gibbons made an early prototype. It worked, but it took still another 15 years of work until in 1952, when the device was shown to work very well with animals. Just the next year, he tried it out on his first human patient, who unfortunately died. Right around this time, Anthony Adrason and Frank Watson suggested employing the heart of a second person as a living heart-lung machine for the patient. C.W. Lillehay tried it out in 1954, with a one-year-old boy suffering from a heart defect. They had his father act as a donor, and the operation was successful, although the patient died of pneumonia 11 days later. Two years later, Lillehay reported some 46 successful operations— but unfortunately the method was not perfect. There is still some danger to the donor, not even the patient themselves, and it was fraught with ethical concerns. Frequently using people as heart-lung machines puts folks, especially parents, in the terrible position of risking their own lives to try to save their childs. Certainly many parents would take such a risk, for example, but doctors are generally trying to do no harm, and Lillehay dropped the method on ethical grounds. At this point, though, mechanical heart-lung machines are not quite ready to take over. There was some heated debate over induced hypothermia versus heart-lung machines, but in 1954, neither method could really be considered safe or give ideal operating conditions. Hypothermia had a time limit, while the pump did not give a motionless heart. A doctor named Dennis Melrose, who helped pioneer heart-lung pumps generally, also figured out how to use drugs to induce cardiac arrest, to keep the heart still during heart-lung machine use. As you can imagine though, inducing a heart attack in patients can be kind of risky. So that's not great either. The key lies in combining the two methods together. With hypothermia and a heart-lung machine in use, a patient could tolerate their heart completely stopping for about 45 minutes without issues. Heart-lung machines were designed that also cooled the blood as it oxygenated and pumped it to accommodate these new advancements. With such long procedure times now possible, open-heart surgery, where the surgeon could actually see what they were cutting, could now be done. This, no pun intended, opened a new realm of possibilities, and a flurry of new surgeries were tried at this time. Repairs of major birth defects and creating prosthetic heart valves instead of just cutting them are just some of the examples. That's where we'll call it for this week. I was not expecting this, but I have to make cardiac surgery a two-parter, because there is a lot that has happened in this realm, and a lot of readily available information on it too. As always, feel free to reach out with feedback with the links in the show notes. Thanks to Jojo Tang for editing, Angie Lee for art, Muse Open for music, and you for your time.